Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, always steering our ship in the right direction, it's Danielle Hanley. Hello, and John, we are not alone. Indeed. Um, (laughs) Joining us on the other line, now that he's finished getting his heart weighed on the scales of eternity, it's Nick Carnes. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for having me, uh... Long-time listener, first-time... Uh, <laughs> we have first very few long-time party. listeners, we, yeah. so we're going to we're gonna take that, and that's going on, like, some clip show that we're going to promote ourselves with. Yeah, and uh, just just to give Nick a little bit more of a formal introduction, Nick is, the, is a professor of public policy at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. He has written multiple books that have really great titles. White Collar Government and The Cash Ceiling are are both titles of your books that I love. And Nick is also the co-editor, along with former guest of the podcast, Lily Gorin, of the Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe volume, which we will hear a little bit more about. So, Nick, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And so, so we don't always ask our guests to do this, but do you want to explain why we had you on this podcast? Sure. Um, So I first encountered the Marvel Entertainment Group in 1991 when my babysitter introduced me to Marvel trading cards. So a big thank you to Tom Angelo for um, showing me that Marvel had trading cards. Um, As a child, I was discouraged from uh, engaging with this content. My parents wanted me to be into sports, um, but the appeal was just too great. So I followed Marvel (laughs) cartoons in the 90s, Marvel Cinema, you know, when that started happening, um, and then watched everything that Marvel Studios made, every MCU film and TV show after that. Um, This is this edited volume, um, which Danielle has an amazing chapter in, by the way, um, is the first academic work I've done on Marvel, you know, cinema or content. But I, uh, yeah, it, it sort of started with a conversation on Twitter with a bunch of friends um, and grew into an amazing volume. But it is my first foray into academic research on popular culture, Marvel. So um, really, I think, grateful that, that uh, you know, uh, I get to engage with people like you who, you know, um, thanks for letting me talk about, giving me an excuse to talk <laughs> about Marvel uh, at, at work. Thanks for joining us. We're so happy. We're so happy to have you. We're happy to hear even more about the the volume. We're happy just for you to bring your excitement and your expertise into the murky waters of our podcast. <laughs> I think the murkiness is my fault is what Danielle was yeah. suggesting yeah, with yeah, that yeah, yeah, is yeah. actually what's happening. But I love it. I love it. I'm I'm fully here Do for you- it. <laughs> I love that it's yours that you're bringing. <laughs> yeah. No, and Dan- I'm thrilled. I love the murkiness, and I love the haterade. I hope you brought a lot, John. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm going to need it over this next period of time here. Danielle, what am I bringing the haterade to this week? You are bringing the haterade to Moon Knight Episode 5, Asylum. It is directed by Mohamed Diab, um, and it is written by Rebecca Kirsch, Matthew Orton, and Jeremy Slater, who has the created for, tel- for TV by credit on this episode. And John, what is the IMDb summary as, uh, you know, illustrious as it, as it is? Yeah, classic uh, Marvel slash Disney uh, short summary. Mark and Steven search through their memories to find their truth or become left behind. I do like that it's their truth and not the truth, which I think will bear on future discussions. Yeah. 
So Nick, moving up, throw a question to you to get us going, perhaps, that Danielle and I were discussing beforehand. And it's about how we might understand Mark and Stephen in regards to kind of narrative structures and narrative tropes and narrative roles in fiction in general, or perhaps specifically in comic books or the MCU. And so it's kind of a tiered question. And the first part of the question is whether Mark and Steven could be considered to be protagonists. And I think the answer is yes, on just a simple kind of narrative structure sort of question. So I think the more interesting questions for us and what we want to hear your ideas about are whether we could consider Mark and Steven to be heroes, whether we would consider them to be anti-heroes, or whether those categories just kind of don't apply to these, this particular character or these set of characters in the system. So I thanks so much for the question. I agree that, you know, Mark and Steven are unquestionably the protagonists. You know, we're following them around, seeing what gets in their way. Um, I'm going to kind of uh, cheat at this question <laughs> we a little it. bit. That's, that's how we answer Perfect. all questions on this podcast, is we <laughs> cheat at answering them. that Steven is a hero and Mark is an anti-hero. Oh, a both so, and in one character. <laughs> both <laughs> and. Um, you know, I, I think Steven has lots of heroic attributes, um... And Mark does too, but crucially from like a Marvel fan perspective, um, Mark kills. Yeah. And Mark kills intentionally as a part of the heroics that he engages in. So he can't really be a full-fledged hero. Um, I think that puts him solidly in the anti-hero category, but he's a remorseful, he's a tortured anti-hero who feels, uh, you know, and we see in this episode, like tremendous regret about his actions so so I think that kind of starts to tip the scales in the hero direction. But I think that's how, if I'm honestly answering the question, I have to put them in those bins. I think that that analysis, putting Stephen more in the, in the category of hero and Mark in the category of anti-hero, makes sense. And also it helps get at this question, which is like, we know that they're the protagonist or protagonists, but we're like, how are we organizing them? The point about Mark killing and that it's a critical part of his character and it's a critical, it's like critical to who he is to us. And that that is sort of the block in, in making him a full hero. Like that, that makes sense to me. That tracks with my, the way I'm sort of like receiving and understanding this story. I think what kind of prompted me to ask this question, it's maybe an interesting build on what both of you just said, is towards the end of the episode, this moment of quasi-integration or integration of Stephen and Mark, where this is in the story that's being told, is kind of signified by, you know, dramatic camera shot of... Steven and Steven acquiring some of Mark's hand-to-hand combat, some of Mark's fighting skills is a, is marking to the audience this moment where they have become more fully integrated with one another. And the fact that it is the use of violence granted in a kind of self-defensive mechanism or self-defensive mode caught into this broader plot about are they going to be able to get back to the upper world in order to work with Layla, in order to stop Ahmed and stop Hera and all these things, is still that they're integrated through the use of violence. It's that mm. particular mechanism for the integration or that particular enactment of how they become integrated that really started me going in this direction. And I think that speaks to the 
intricacy of the way perhaps that they're playing with Mark and Steven as heroes and anti-heroes or drawing on tropes, including tropes like who uses violence, how, and for what reason, and with what kind of emotional self-reflection or self-resonance. So I'm interested in what either of you think about that being the particular way that the show depicts this moment of further integration between the two. Well, it seems like that that's the main point of division between the two, right? Like the, that the use of violence, like as um, Nick, as you were saying, like that's one of the big things that sets Mark and Steven apart from one another. Right. And it's one of the ways we understand Steven as hero, Mark as anti-hero. And so the coming back together through the use of violence to me seems to like at least put the circle a bit back together or like to, to put that arc like back into something a bit more complete. I, I think that makes sense to me. And of course, you know, there's this crucial distinction, even when they're using violence in this amazing integration scene, you know, they're still not killing you know, sentient beings that are alive. And I think that's, that's a really crucial, you know, sort of line in, well, line in the sand. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. Uh, This has been great. Um, (laughs) But but that is, you know, in, in, you know, superhero fiction, that is a really crucial um, dividing line between who's a hero and who's an anti-hero. Venom meets people, Spider-Man, you know, might rough them up or, you know, in this case, you know, we have Mark and Steven both fighting these kind of, you know, sand embodiments of kind of damned souls or something like that. Still not the same as killing a person who's alive. And that's what separates, um, you know, and and that's at this point in the narrative too, that's the chief thing that makes um, Arthur Harrow such a villain. You know, we're watching him at the same time, killing people who are alive, sending souls down to the Duat um before their time and and we're really saying he is in another category altogether he is a true villain he can't even be an anti-hero well and the the thing that jumped to my mind which takes us just for a second to a a different mcu show that i know john has not watched but the thing that jumps to my mind i'm sure i have preconceived judgments on which i can apply to which i can apply uh this other show to (laughs) fair but the scene in Falcon and the Winter Soldier where John Walker decapitates someone with the shield, like, I think is to go back to your broader point about hero, anti-hero, but also to think about, like, the significance of the kind or the content of the violence that Stephen is sort of willing to use. Like, it's still not crossing that line of murder for the sake of murder. Right. Well, and if I were to kind of, you know, push back on this both and argument we're trying to make, it might be along the lines of, you know, it's still violence and it's kind of a a bit of a cheap shortcut or, or sort of an out to make the people we're roughing up, you know, somehow not sentient living things. Um, but I still think, you know, when we step back and think about it from sort of the audience's perspective that there is some sort of larger value in having heroes defined by having specific lines they won't cross. Mm-hmm. That's what makes them different from anti-heroes even, is they, they have some moral code that doesn't allow them to do things that would be expedient, um, and that, that is what separates them. So no matter how much violence you know Stephen engages in, he's probably not... I, I would bet you even money, 10 years from now, we're not going to have a Stephen Grant you know, alter, you know, a a scene where the Stephen Grant alter intentionally kills a living person because we want to keep him in the the hero category. 
Stephen Grant Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Mark's Mark's already done enough Breaking Bad for the two of them. So so Stephen can, you know, he's you know that's not his purpose um, in a very real sense. Not just in within the story itself, but within our experience as audience, we need someone who's uh, not as bad as Mark. And and that's also relevant to the whole episode, of course. You know, the the untraumatized person sort of mm-hmm. interacting with this other this other traumatized person. But I had not thought about actually classifying Moon Knight or Mark Spector at all in, in the first place. And so this is a really challenging question. And I'm sort of unsatisfied almost with calling Mark an anti-hero in a way. And and this gets to some of, you know, the discussion or the, some of the depiction of trauma in the episode. Um, in, in what ways, Nick? Say more about that. Well, so, <clears throat> I, you know, not to, to spoil the whole episode, but, uh, or rush too far ahead here, Go but the episode lays out non-chronologically, but to, I think, emotionally devastating effect as yeah. a viewer, the story of Mark's life. And it's a really, really painful story. He, you know, loses a sibling in a really tragic accident. Then his mom becomes verbally abusive and then physically abusive in really, really extreme ways. He becomes alienated from his family of origin joins the military, is discharged because of his dissociative identity disorder, takes a side job um, that involves violence, and then is himself the victim of extreme violence in that side job. And then, to cap it all off, is, you know, exploited into becoming the fist of Khonshu. So we see this, like, really, really tragic story. And part of me wants to forgive Mark for the violence he engages in. Part of me wants to say, he's not really an anti-hero. He did all that stuff, but here's the excuse. All these bad things happened to him along the way that are never really acknowledged until his conversations with Steven. Um, uh, yeah. At, at the same time, I can't quite cross that line because it's so ingrained in me as a comic book and superhero fan heroes don't kill. And so, but I find myself really wanting to relax that rule in Mar- in uh, Mark's case. And I think Nick, to, I mean, the last point that you made about antiheroes is that I think that one of the defining characteristics of antiheroes, not even necessarily within the MCU, but in kind of like the past 15 years of, you know, 20 years of prestige TV or all of these sorts of things are that the antiheroes often get the emotional backstory that explains the often traumatic origins of the violence they commit or the things that they do that make them antiheroes. So I don't think that that necessarily, I think that that situates Mark mm. very firmly in kind of the way that TV culture tends to depict anti-heroes. That actually is kind of confirmation, I think, of that reading more than anything else. I think maybe we want Mark to have a line that he won't cross, but I, I'm not sure that he has one. And I'm just thinking of the scene a couple of episodes ago where Conchu's like, you know, uh, like hang the kid over the, over the chasm, like, you don't have to, he'll, he'll give up the, the location. You, he won't do anything. Um, and then the kid cuts the rope, even though Mark is not the one who throws him off the, the side of the cliff. He's still like an agent who had, like he has agency in that moment and doesn't necessarily have to listen to Conchu. We've seen him push back against Conchu before. So I think like I'm, I struggle with like, I want Mark to have a line because I I like him as a character. I, I like the viewpoint he offers us, but I don't I don't really think that he has one. Or if he does, it's very blurry. Well, the line he has is with Steven, right? He keeps trying to prevent Steven from viewing the moment at which 
he dissociates into Steven mm-hmm. in order to try to protect or insulate himself from the physical abuse that his mom commits against him, right? The line is a kind of internal, internally oriented one rather than an externally towards the world or externally towards other people or beings in the world, it seems to me. Now, how that fits into like this anti-hero hero discussion is I don't actually know the answer to, but I do think he has that line yeah. that he tries hard not to cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that that really structures much of this episode, right? And much of the interaction between Mark and Steven in this episode is like attempts over and over again to like keep Steven in the dark about the origin of Steven. I feel like I said Steven too many times in that <laughs> sentence, but here we are. I thought it was just right at the exact number of Stevens. Um no, I think I have to grant your point, John, that, that he is a Mark is a very traditional anti-hero. After viewing this episode, I have such sympathy for him. I feel such great like grief yeah. for yeah. his experience as it's depicted here. That it's a little bit of you know, it, it, you know, it's a bit of wishful thinking on my part to say I wish I could call him a hero. But you're you're exactly right. He's an anti-hero. Uh, on the boat, he proposes violence against Towerette. Like oh my gosh. you know, and that's and, and it's in a jest, you know, it's in a funny way, right? But that's also perfectly fitting with the anti-hero. He's yeah. he's the air quotes bad boy in this scenario who's who's willing to cross lines that, you know, even in that little action interaction, Steven's saying, no, we couldn't you know, possibly like attack this you know, um, and he doubles deity. down on it, right? He's there's like, two there's, of there's us two of one us. <laughs> there's two of us and one of her. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're right that he is definitely, a, you know, maybe a very, very sympathetic anti-hero, but uh, unquestionably belongs there. But I mean, this is indeed a the function of putting an anti-hero in a protagonist role or in part of a protagonist role in a narrative. But then also more specifically, like this is the discussion that Danielle and I had, I think on like the very last episode of the Americans half of the podcast about what the complicity of an audience is and rooting for protagonists who are anti-heroes or just bad people to Mm. succeed in the bad things that they are doing or the lines they are crossing or whatever the thing is that makes them morally objectionable or ethically objectionable, that that's one of the fundamental questions of pieces of culture that are about anti-heroes, right? And that's not even specific to TV, but like goes far back into the history of like literature is one wants to go and like examine all the anti-heroes that take on structurally protagonistic <clears throat> <roles>. Tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Precisely. Well, if I could just say what makes Mark seem weird to me is that he doesn't relish yeah. The bad things he does in the way that I think a tradition or when I, when I think of other antiheroes, admittedly in superhero fiction, um, <laughs> they, they more often like being right on the cusp of villainy. Um, and Mark, you know, throughout this episode expresses remorse. I wish the people I was killing, I wish one of them had killed me. That's a really heavy statement yeah. of grief about his own. And I think that's potentially useful in the sense that, this show is setting up an anti-hero, but really saying to the audience, air quotes, you know, the anti-hero is not someone to be emulated. The anti-hero is someone who can't really even live with his own actions so much that he might be damned to hell for all eternity because he has such grief and so, such an inability to even confront the choices he made um, in some way. So maybe maybe it's doing some good with its anti-hero by setting up an anti-hero as not someone we should emulate. Um, whether, you know, whether that, that point translates and whether people get that, I don't know, but. Well, and I think that, just, that message. 
I think okay. just to just to add slightly onto that is is that I think it matters what it is we're rooting for Mark to do, right? Mm. And I think. I think the show wants us, or at least the way that I'm experiencing the show is the show wants us to root for Mark to like disentangle himself from Kanchu, right? Like that, that's part of the thing we're rooting for. And so like the path to get there is laden with violence, but the, the end point is perhaps one that's less violent. I see John smiling. <laughs> the end justifies the means here, right? Like I think it raises the question of like, is one, is that what we're rooting for Mark to do? Are we rooting for him to be out of Conchu's like, I don't know, spell? And, and two, are we then made to be okay with the violence because we're rooting for like an end point at which that violence ostensibly ceases? One of the fundamental questions again of like the last two decades of anti-hero TV yeah. shows is mm. ends justify me. Do ends justify means? How much reflection, remorse, et cetera, does one require of an anti-hero in order to be able to still identify with them? Mm-hmm. All of these sorts of things. But in some ways, I actually think this kind it takes us to the next big question we wanted to talk about with this episode. And that is, I'm going to say juxtaposition, although we might then in answering the question, push back on the juxtaposition framing of on the one hand, we have this story about trauma, about violence, about DID. And then on the other hand, perhaps we have that story being told through Egyptian cosmology or through an engagement or representation of Egyptian cosmology, which we may or may not talk about as Orientalists or colonialists, and we'll get there. But to ask the generous question first, which I'm so wants to do, um, <laughs> what do we think the show is trying to achieve by telling this story about trauma, violence, and DID through the representation of Egyptian cosmology? And are they successful at what we think they're trying to do? Can I reject the premise of the question? Yes. True, <laughs> true, not quite books fashion. Uh, um, it wasn't, it's not clear to me that the show was setting out to do the sort of intellectual work of the show <laughs> through a colonialist or an orientalist, uh, uh, you know, sort of framework. Like, I, I think, and this goes back to something, you know, Danielle and I were talking about earlier, uh, you know, Marvel creators have to work with um, content that has often like a really problematic legacy, like yeah. to love Marvel. <laughs> I, uh, Danielle, I hope I'm not like cutting in front of you and saying, no, this, um, no, 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 but, this is perfect. But like to love Marvel, you know, comics or cinema, um, you have to sort of love a thing that was often really, really problematic and bad in the past and is somehow today, like, you know, redeemed or better and, and quite inspiring and quite moving. And you just sort of have to live with that duality. This thing that I love that I find so, you know, instructive or generative or whatever was also really, really bad 50 years ago or not even 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so, so I guess I don't see this as like, the writers trying to tell a story about trauma, which I think this episode they're really trying to tell an interesting and nuanced and I would guess original story about trauma. Um, but they're, I don't think they said like, oh, we're going to tell about a story about trauma. Well, let's, you know, let's, you know, dig up the character that has this colonial Egyptian problem. I think yeah, it was so, more- so, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I hear you and we can maybe get into the, whether this is colonial orientalist part of it, but then even, 
if we set that to the side for now, what do we think the show is trying to do by using Egyptian cosmology to tell a story about trauma? What if we just kind of like phrase the question, frame the question in that kind of most direct way, less me adding my own uh, opinions <laughs> onto it version of the question. But I think I would put that question back to you. Why are you seeing those things in juxtaposition or rather like, why does I took the juxtaposition even out of my like basic framing of the question, just like on a pure like storytelling level. Yeah absent whatever my many uh, criticisms and complaints are, <laughs> like what is the show trying to do telling this story through this vehicle? It's, I think, a question that doesn't require all of my like critical mm. judgments laid on top of it. Well, I th- I, so I think like to pick up on, on something that Nick was saying that I think start, gets at, at the question without the other pieces of it is the show is trying, t- the show is trying to tell us the story of a comic book character, right? This is a character that exists in um, like the Marvel comics universe, not the Marvel cinematic universe. So on the one hand, this show is trying to bring this character into the MCU. This is a character that has like DID or that experiences DID, right? That, that like has experienced this trauma that has gone through these things. So I, I, I think the I I think the at least what I'm hearing from Nick part of the part of the question that you're rejecting is the like the what is the show trying to do by bringing these things together because like those things are together for this character. So then the question becomes is the like does the Egyptian cosmology piece of it like impact or overshadow or or muddy the the story of of trauma and violence does it enhance it does it not do anything to it like i think that mm. it's a slightly different question but i like this is the character like moon, this is this is mark specter this is moon knight like this is the version of moon knight that we're getting in the mcu which is admittedly like slightly tweaked from the comic version but like not extensively so so like the show is giving us this character. Does the fact that, it, like, does the Egyptian cosmology piece of it, like, muddy the waters of that character in a way that is, like, unproductive or ungenerative? And I'm not even trying to, like, you all are not letting me ask the generous question that I'm trying to ask. <laughs> we don't um, believe that you have a generous question in you. <laughs> No, no, that's I'm right. Like, we're just we're we're starting from a defensive <laughs> position here. I'm, 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 I am I am legitimately interested in the non-loaded version of the question yeah, that yeah. Jess asked, which is what do we get in what the show is trying to do with regards to depicting trauma and violence that we would not have if it were told through a vehicle that did not involve Egyptian cosmology. Like, how is the setting, how is the yeah. cosmological or ontological structure impacting the thing that is trying to tell about trauma? Like, that's the question I'm asking. Like, I have my loaded additions yeah. to it and, like, my hater and my hating additions. But I do think that's a question worth asking, even if my original framing of what is the show trying to do is perhaps, like, trying to overlay too yeah. much, like, auteurism onto what a Marvel television show yeah. is doing. <laughs> I, I just don't think it's trying to do what you're asking why, you know, you're, you're asking why it's trying to do this thing. I'm not sure it's trying to do that. I think uh, maybe this is a, 
more direct way of answering your question. I think the show is trying to redeem a character in a story that had lots of very serious flaws, like the ones yeah. you talked about in uh, your show on episode one. It's trying to redeem it by doing something substantial and good with it while reducing to the extent possible the problematic aspects of the story. So like in episode one, you know, we get uh, a Stephen Grant, but you know, he's a Stephen Grant who's very innocent and he's sort of put off by the really reductionist touristy way that Egyptian culture, history and religion are depicted by like this museum he works for. Yeah. So, so, Right at the uh, from the jump, they're taking this story. You can't really tell it's not a Moon Knight story if it's not rooted in, you know, that that uh, uh, Egyptian cosmology piece. But from the jump, the character is expressing some misgivings about the way Egyptian cosmology is abused by, you know, businesses or museums or whatever. And then they're trying to do something useful. Okay, you can't tell a Moon Knight story without DID, so they're trying to at least use that story to to talk about something real that could potentially be valuable for viewers, which is like, how do you process trauma? Well, let's do that on the screen in real time. Let's have a character process trauma for us and model some healthy uh, responses to trauma. I think maybe that's what's happening in the episode. So that's, I think where I was going with my original yeah. rambly pushback is they're, they're not, you know, they're not trying to tell a trauma story through a colonialist vehicle they're taking this colonialist vehicle and saying what's the best we can do with this and we're seeing this in other mcu shows not to jump too far ahead but like you know the ms marvel show just snuck a history lesson about partition <laughs> yeah to a superhero tv show that's yeah. really something like like they're really yeah. i think i think modern creators are trying to take this problematic content and do something better with it um so that's that's you know I, i'm sorry i'm going off on like grand theories about uh, Marvel and the MCU here, but we we're going are, to invite you to do more coming up soon. So we <laughs> were, also, yeah, we support. I warned this. you all ahead of time. Yeah, you knew, we're uh, <laughs> we're like, give us more. I love that because I think what it does is it Nick, your answer asks us to put the prop, the like property or the character first, as opposed to the like the structural questions first. And I, I think that's in part how I experience these shows. I think the other thing, like John, to get back to your question, is like. Something that the Egyptian cosmology allows for is like this whole set of conversations around trauma that like, I'm not entirely sure how else, at least in an entertaining or creative way, like that gets put on screen, right? Like the way that like the balancing of the hearts and like there's, they start to figure out that like, Oh, the, the heart, like Steven sees the hearts are moving more slowly. Like here, this, this something that we're doing here is working. Like that to me is like a very creative way to represent the processing of trauma without like having um, having Mark sit in a therapist's office, which is why I think like the juxtaposition with like the Dr. Harrow in the asylum part is like so clever because that's the, there's a version of this story that you could tell that way where, where Mark is processing his trauma. We don't, I don't want to watch that. I want to watch Mark and Steven run around like the imagined asylum and to just like, chilling out and like popping up on the boat, you know, like that's the version of this I want. So like, I think it offers like a creative lens into this. 
that's the kind of thing that I was interested in, like hearing from the two of you who, you know, find more like perhaps emotional resonance with the show among other things as, you know, to be sure. And again, that's like not to, that's not actually not a dim, that's not intended. No, that's just different people like different things. Yeah. Because like, it's, it's, for me, it's the question of what does, I, I fully take the point that like they're pre given this setting, this cosmology, this kind of narrative structure. But then give, you know, if we accept that that's a given that the mm-hmm. creators of this show are doing, what I want to see is like, what does that pre given thing enable them to do? Yeah. Right. Mm. And, you know, and both of you have spoken to that in various ways. That's, I think, the, you know, perhaps I didn't quite appreciate the depth of how pre given that was. And, like, the terms of the question didn't really kind of engage that. But given that the structure, the setting, et cetera, et cetera, is pre given and predetermined, they're given the form. Right. And they're making up the content to use that distinction, which yeah. is an ironic distinction to make um, <laughs> when we talk about IP. But I, I want to see how the form is interacting back on the content. I don't want to yeah. say that, like, I don't think they're just given the form and they're making content within it. Or at least I hope that's not the case. So I, I do want to see what the like interaction is between those two things. This discussion also maybe brings us to one of the next things that we wanted to talk about. So Nick, I wanted to, to ask you to speak a little bit on the way in which trauma is being depicted and in particular sort of the conversation or the relationship between Stephen and Mark here. Yeah, thanks. Um, so this was something that I thought was really potentially redeeming about the episode or about the entire series is, is that I can't recall, like I know, and, and John has criticized this on a past episode, but like everything's about hashtag trauma these days. And I actually agree with that critique, yeah. but I still thought this show was doing something original in its depiction of trauma by essentially positioning Steven as a pre-traumatized or untraumatized adult version of Mark. They share a life. They share a sort of beginning. Um, And then what would that conversation look like between those two people? What would a conversation between a traumatized person and someone who is protected from the identical traumas look like? I think that's a really interesting way of like modeling the kind of work people do in like talk therapy or Mm -hmm. just modeling the process of like coming to terms with trauma that people might do just on their own sort of uh, on reflection. And I couldn't think of another good example in fiction of someone doing this work. I can think of like really potentially useful depictions of like therapy, something like the Sopranos got a whole lot of people to start going to therapy. Um, But this actually wasn't really anti-heroes and violence, right? (laughs) There we go. But this wasn't quite that. This wasn't a commercial for therapy. It was almost a commercial for um, what therapy is supposed to achieve, which is like honestly Mm. looking at yourself and, um, pushing back against the negative interpretations. So, you know, um, so, so Mark and Steven are watching these traumas happen in real time and every beat Steven saying, you know, uh, what a person should say to themselves, you were just a child. Conchu was manipulating you. He was exploiting you. Um, and Mark is, you know, along the way, sort of resisting, accepting these messages. He's saying, you know, maybe, maybe Conchu was just bringing out the killer that was already in me. And, and he needs that, untraumatized or pre-traumatized self there. And I just thought that was a really original depiction of processing trauma um, that I couldn't, I couldn't think of a, a you know, a, a good sort of, yeah, I couldn't think of anything that had done something similar in the past. I found it quite moving myself. I mean, I don't mind telling an expert on crying, 
that, uh, <laughs> that this episode was a tearjerker for me. I mean, this episode yeah. really affected me emotionally. Um, and so, so that's my kind of plug for what's redeeming about uh, episode five uh, of Moon Knight. Appreciate that, Nick. I mean, I if there's an analog, and this will not surprise Danielle that this is the analog that that I go to is is Station Eleven from earlier this year, which doesn't have quite the same directness of the conversation between the traumatized self and untraumatized self. But I think the way that that story is told and some particular elements of it, including Danielle, the way they think about theater and tragedy does some of that specific work of how does one process trauma, not in the same way that Moon Knight does. And I fully take your point that there's something about the the way the show is depicting DID and the way that Mark and Steven are depicted and relate to one another in the show and in this episode in particular adds a certain directness and intentionality to that that is perhaps unrepresentable absent that directness. So first of all, I just want to say, while I have not watched Station Eleven, I did read the book while I was in London. So I have a sense of what you're talking about, Um, though I do not know the way that it's represented on screen. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think like I... I'm obviously a more generous consumer of this show than John is. I like thinking about the relationship between Mark and Steven as sort of what therapy is supposed to achieve, but also like the fact that the show doesn't shy away from the challenges of that too, like that there's still the struggle between them, that Mark is still not about trying to come to terms with what has happened, but like even just letting Steven in letting Steven like see those pieces, right? Like that, that is a huge struggle. And so I think like, I, I, Nick, I'm with you. Like this, this episode made me cry, but I also cry a lot at TV. I cry a lot in general. It's why I wrote a dissertation on it. Um, <laughs> literally. I think a Marvel show being able to tap into those kinds of emotions. And, and we talk about this a lot, like whether or not things are earned, like, this felt earned like in this Mm -hmm. episode within the world of this episode, it felt earned. Like would I have liked 10 more episodes where we like each episode were in a different room and we got to like explore more backstory. Of course. Cause I want more moon Knight and more Oscar Isaac all the time, but like it did feel like the, the building in this episode felt like when we got to the point of Steven or rather of Mark not going into his mother Shiva, like that, I felt that breaking point, right? I felt that breaking point. I could have used more, but like, I I didn't feel like out of nowhere. 100%. And to perhaps give the show some credit, the main place that Mark doesn't want to let Steven see is inside the bedroom, right? The other place, one of the first rooms that they open is, Mark on the street outside his mother Shiva, right? And mm-hmm. not going in. And Mark like shuffles Steven along and skips over that the first time, right? So then that we then see it again, right? And like Mark takes the keepa off and like throws it on the ground, but then like picks it back up, right? That that mm. is, that has indeed like been structured and set up throughout the episode. I feel very excited that you just used the word keepa. I like, <laughs> <laughs> makes me happy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. So Danielle, a lot of this is taking place. All of this is taking place as they're traversing the underworld. Yeah. 
And to maybe this is another way of like asking the question that you won't just let me ask generously. <laughs> what does the setting of the Egyptian underworld enable us to think about? First of all, again, just to sort of go back to this point, like it is like new, it's different, it's creative. So like there's, there's that element of it all. Like, I don't know. We haven't been in the, in the, or an underworld or an afterlife, uh, for this amount of time, I guess we do get a little bit of the, the ancestral plane in, in black Panther, but like, this is the, like a very tiny bit. So one, like that in and of itself feels creative to me. I also think like that, and this is something that Tavaret says, to uh i can't remember if it's mark or steven but like she says it's an afterlife not the afterlife so there's that opening to like the multiplicity or or perhaps not necessarily multiverse but but many layers many levels which i'm always interested in because i think a story that has a number of openings to me is a successful story because it it allows for Mm. building on that story um and then i also just I I just want to call attention to the moving back and forth between the afterlife and that is like, that is the asylum for Stephen and Mark that they're running through. And then the asylum where with Dr. Harrow, where like Stephen and Mark are sort of have switched back and forth a few times. I think like that allows us to ask a question that we asked last time about like, what is real or, you know, what's reality, what constitutes reality here. It allows us to like build out that question. And I'm still not sure what's reality. And I kind of love that. I'm not sure. I had the same reaction, not knowing. I mean, the first time I watched the episode, I wasn't sure whether the Dr. Harrow, they were interaction. Was was this like, an Arthur Harrow power that we hadn't yet seen revealed in the series or something. Yeah. He can enter your dying mind. And, and uh, and in a way the show doesn't really resolve what that Dr. Harrow, what those were. It's very clear that when we're down in the, you know, running through the hallways and corridors with Mark and Steven, we're very clearly in the afterlife. Yes. Um, but then when they sort of emerge in Dr. Harrow's office, I was, you know, still, I'm, I'm still to this day puzzled by that. And I like that. I like that a show that has a big element of fantasy uh, leaves me, you know, with a feeling of like uncertainty or magic about the, the, yeah. sort of the story I just saw. Like we know that there are rules, but we don't necessarily have a full grasp of the rules is my mm. favorite kind of show to be in. 100% agree. I mean, I will actually agree with, uh, with both yes. of you <laughs> and say that, I mean, the, the ab, you know, I have whatever my complaints and I'm sure we'll have some complaint corner time coming up later in the episode. We do. Because um, one of us will insist on it. I don't know who that will be. The irresolution of what is the organizing pattern or what is the organizing structure? What is the kind of psychic container? What is the experience of reality? How does memory mediate between those two things when they reappear back in Harrow's, Dr. Harrow's office, right? How real is that as opposed to that being another organizing pattern in which to work through some of the trauma, that kind of irresolution is perhaps the thing that I liked the most about this particular episode. Mm. I'll take it. Yeah, that's a win. 
total win. <laughs> um, anything else that we want to um, make sure to touch on in the main discussion, or are we may be ready to move on to Marvel Splaining. Let's go to the segments. Let's go to the segments. All right. Marvel Splaining, we actually don't have a ton of questions here, but uh, we do have an Easter egg hunt. So Right. I've got a few possibilities for the Easter egg hunt. Um, number one is Putnam Medical in Chicago. Is something? Is there a Putnam somewhere else in the MCU that gives its name to the maybe real, maybe not uh, mental institution that Dr. Harrow works at? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I don't know of anything off the top. Yeah, I don't. My gut is no, but like, I don't I know. I will maybe. say that in some of the recent Disney Plus shows, they're sneaking in creators' names. Yeah. So so in Ms. Marvel, there's like a plaque on the wall in one place where you see the, you know, writers who create and artists who created Ms. Marvel. Um, so that would be my guess, but I don't know. I was just trying to think, is there like a writer or, or um, somebody who maybe inks the comics who, or an illustrator who like has the name Putnam? Like, I think you're right, but that's probably the, the, the most likely possibility, but I don't know. Yeah. All right. So my other guess for Easter egg hunt is we get this phrase travelers of the night. The particular phrasing of that tripped my memory to be like, maybe this phrase travelers of the night appears somewhere else. So I don't think that specific phrase appears, but the thing that jumps to mind when you ask that question is like werewolf by night, that whole set of creatures. So I don't like who, which is my favorite part of Marvel, the horror, you know, inspired Marvel, you know, characters. I don't know if travelers by night is necessarily an Easter egg, but I think the, I'll, I'll give it to you because the link that it pulls in my head is is to this Marvel horror stuff, which is like super fun. And Oscar Isaac is on record as like wanting to do a special with some of these characters. So I don't know. We might see it in the future. Pass. Well, that will not that will not be covered on not quite great books of TV podcast. <laughs> I definitely think you deserve a point for that. Um, not, the, the, <laughs> not the passing. I hope you'll reconsider. Um, <laughs> but the Travelers of the Night um, doesn't Moon Knight originated in an episode or in a, an issue of Werewolf by Night. So his first yeah. appearance is in a Werewolf by Night. Yeah. Dan- I, I don't get a point. Danielle gave me a hint before um, you hopped on. Next. Oh, okay. <laughs> but then I thought that was alluding to, and maybe uh, forgive me if I'm just misunderstanding the the sort of uh, the question. But like I thought that was alluding to Conchu's mandate that. Conchu protects the Travelers of the Night, and the Moon Knight is supposed oh. to protect the Travelers of the Night. Which I actually think is one of those elements that modern writers have been able to pull forward from the original comic book canon. And in modern comics, that's actually got a sort of social justice interpretation. Yeah. So in like the ongoing Moon Knight series, he understands his mandate to be protecting vulnerable people because historically the people who traveled by night were not, you know, were people who were vulnerable and in danger. And so now Moon Knight sort of protects vulnerable populations in like ways that I think are really endearing, you know, or if we want to think of comic book heroes as role models, definitely better than, you know, probably the moon Knight we meet in, you know, the original comics. Yeah. I think that that's, I, I like that. I like, I like also bringing sort of the modern, uh, the modern Marvel canon into this a little bit and thinking about sort of going back to an earlier point, like attempts to reinvigorate these more generous pieces of these characters, even if like parts of the broader structure remain questionable. 
Yeah. I'll give John questionable. <laughs> Thank you. I'm honored. Any other Easter eggs you've got there? I don't think so. That's it. Let's dive into gloss. Well, do you have Easter eggs you want to throw in there, Nick? Oh, yeah. I mean, what about the ancestral plane? John, uh, have you not seen Black Panther? I have seen Black Panther. Oh, yeah. So the, the sort of friendly, you know, uh, Towerette saying, you know, oh, the ancestral plane is really cool. That was my favorite Easter egg probably oh, in the whole series was a good one. Towerette now explaining that the ancestral plane exists sort of is somehow analogous to the Duat. And that's where, and, you know, that's, I think, the most, the coolest Easter egg in all of this is the unspoken role of Bost and the unspoken yeah. role of the sort of Black Panther narrative in Moon Knight uh, as a show is, is I think, the coolest Easter egg of all. I, I don't think they ever say Boss' name, but no. that's the missing eighth uh, deity. Um, and so I like that we're getting these little nods to the Black Panther film. Oh, in the Aeneid. Yeah, I believe that's oh, the missing yeah. eighth deity. Um, and Steven doesn't ever get a chance to correct his really mean, for no reason, Boss. Um, but I <laughs> believe that's number eight. Okay. <laughs> So oh. I was thrilled by that was like my one of my favorite Marvel Easter eggs ever was was when the, I'm like, oh, my God, I jumped out of my seat when she said the ancestral plane nice. uh, exists in her, you know, sort of deity, whatever universe. Well, and we also get boss as one of the the gods in uh, Omnipotent City in Love and Thunder, just like a real quick pan. So, you know, an amazing costume, I amazing mean, costume, some of the best visuals in the MCU full stop for, for sure. I'm going to be honest. I didn't even make this connection until you two have now brought it up a couple of times in this episode, because I was off on a Deleuze and Guadari uh, train <laughs> when Tavara used the phrase, uh, many planes of untethered consciousness. <laughs> and I was just lost and off on my own little line of flight over there. A great Easter egg. <laughs> a great Deleuze and Guattari Easter egg. Uh, Always. Nick, like we said, too, we like... <laughs> that, that, that was my Easter egg. Yeah, that, that's Guattari a John Easter egg. egg. Um, <laughs> we like this entire podcast to be like us smuggling the podcast into the cave. So here we are with our... I think this is our second. We've had Machiavelli, and now we've got Deleuze and Guattari. And we're not even in the cave yet. Great. Let's go to glass and take a step closer to the cave. Eh? <laughs> eh? Um, so, <laughs> Danielle, you've talked about the show Moon Knight being the place where the MCU is able to do weird Marvel or horror Marvel. Yeah. So, Nick, how do you see Moon Knight kind of picking up that opportunity that it has within the broader MCU of doing just weirder stuff? So I'm absolutely thrilled that it's doing, you know, weirder stuff, you know, air quotes, we, like um, more fantasy and bringing in the, you know, sort of monster side of Marvel, which we have not seen much of so far in the MCU. But historically, it's a really big, really important part of why Marvel Comics su succeeded as a sort of broad storytelling enterprise. Um, Marvel Comics glob, like they were able to create a shared storytelling environment where you could have romance and you could have sci-fi and you could have fantasy yeah. and you could have monsters and people like people love monster fiction. And so I see Moon Knight as like, and, and we know it's the beginning of Marvel doing some of this monster fiction. We know we're going to get werewolf by night yet. We have a little wink at the macabre man thing mm -hmm. in, um, Thor Ragnarok. And I could not be happier that they're doing the Marvel that they're doing Marvel monsters going forward. To come back to some of the points that we discussed in the general discussion, like 
I don't know. It just feels like the Marvel horror is a place that there's just a lot of real estate that's really weird that could be really cool and random and like, you know, just fit together in these like bizarro ways. Like I'm, I don't, I don't love zombies. Like as a general rule, I'm mostly afraid of them. Um, but like, I really appreciated, uh, you know, zombie Dr. Strange, but also just like zombies in, in the first season of what if like playing around with that stuff, just like there's, there's an opening in the weird stuff, especially in the monster stuff that we haven't gotten really yet. And I want to say, it's not just the weird... So uh, I'm not, like, saying I only want weird stuff. Yeah. It's like I love That's that... That's me. I only want the weird <laughs> stuff. Like, if, if Danielle and I are going to watch the MCU together, I want pure weird stuff. Make it weirder than is possible within the broader um, narrative framework and political economic framework. Of the oh, okay. Then, then, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is actually a really promising moment in the MCU's history yeah. because I, I think if you had told me 10 years ago we were going to be getting a Moon Knight and a Werewolf by, Werewolf by Night show and a Marvel Zombies like TV adaptation, yeah. I would have said there's no way Marvel Studios will be able to do that and get mainstream audiences excited about it. And so... Even that we were going to get like the Dark Dimension and Dormammu and like all that stuff, like we got a piece of it in the first Doctor Strange, but like that's where that franchise is going, right? Like there is just so much like wonky, like... I don't know. Nick and I were talking about this off air, but like, I also, I, I lump the Eternals into like the Marvel weird stuff. Like, yep. I just think like Jack Kirby just like doing himself and like the Eternals are so weird, but so cool. And like, I, I'm pumped that we're getting another Eternals movie. Like, bring on the adventures of Eros and Pip. Yep. I just want well, to say Harry Styles just got yoked to the MCU for like 47 years, if I am understanding correctly. Yes. Those reports have not been confirmed yet. Okay. I am watching them very closely. <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> I know. All of the fingers crossed. Like, give us arrows from now until the end of time. This weird stuff, like, I think it took a few years of world building with more conventional, yes. you know, superheroes who are just you know, super powered individuals who fight, you know, threats to the world. Yeah. That gets a lot of people bought into a big storytelling environment who, if we had started with Moon Knight or if we had started with even like, I, I'm still shocked in a way. I didn't believe walking into infinity war that they were going to do the snap. I said, there's no really? way that's, and now it's like a, it's a universal cultural touchstone. Like yeah. everyone on the planet knows Thanos has snapped. <laughs> Even I know I've never seen the movie. I know exactly what happens. Literally walking into that film, knowing it was called infinity war. I said, there's no way they're going to do that. That's too weird. It's too sci-fi. It's, and you know, yeah. um, and, and yet they're pulling it off and they're bringing audiences in. And I think that opens the door to getting some people to watch now multiverse of madness, which is really weird. And now Dr. Strange is running off with, Clea to the dark dimension to do some even weirder stuff. And I think that's Charlie's Throne. Oh gosh. Yes. This is a Charlize Throne pro podcast. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, I like, listen, I, I fully agree. I, I also agree that like, there is a, a building up of what counts as weird over the years. And I think like, that's actually, that explains a lot of like, how people are responding to like phase four is a mess. No, 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 no. And it's like, no, like they, they've set the stage with all these pretty conventional characters and now they need to figure out like 
sort of how to bring in a whole other set of characters. And like, it's only going to get weirder. So we need to sort of ease into it. Anyway, we can get more into that. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the measuring or the weighing of the souls. Yeah, so we get in this episode, right? So we have fairly early on, right? Uh, Tavaret reaches into their chest cavities, pulls out their heart. She's going to weigh them on the, on the scales. And it struck me that this is the second version of something like that happening in Moon Knight, right? And the difference being with Amit, right? So Amit, through Harrow or through her agents uh, in the world, right, are judging people through the scale tattoo even, and we get some of the same sort of kind of elements of that, but it's the totalizing judgment of whether somebody is a good person who lives in Amit's case or goes to the field of reeds in Tvarit's case or in the underworld's case, or dies in Amit's case, goes to Duat and to fully the underworld um, in Tvarit and the underworld world's case. And obviously the difference there is that Amit's is a pre-judgment and that the thing that's happening to Steven slash Mark at the end is a like genuine post hoc judgment of one's kind of morality. But I'm wondering if either of you saw further distinctions to draw between these two different, but structurally somewhat similar acts of judging somebody's kind of moral standing. I think they're only structurally similar if we grant that time operates differently in each of them. Time operates conventionally in the, in the underworlds, like judging at the end of life. And like there's, I think, a version of queer time that is happening with the Ahmet judgment. So I think like that's the way we can read them as, as, Right, like if if we want to see them as similar, then we have to grant that time operates differently in each of them. Yeah, for sure. I'm just not sure that's a queer temporality thing. Loki has more queer temporality than Amin has queer temporality. That's fair. Uh, I think that, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the fact that the judgment happens after everything, after you do, after you make the choices for like the duat, is significant. Like, I think that's the thing that's. Like, just like you said, like that to me is like the, the big piece that's different. Yeah. That kind of free will versus predetermination piece is important. I also think it's interesting that Tauret like uh, allows people in a sort of purgatory moment where they can potentially redeem themselves. You know, you have until we reach the field of reeds or until we're sort of overcome by the duot, you have a moment to get your scales in balance. And I thought that was a really... Sort I hadn't sort of considered that's a crucial distinction, certainly for Martha Harrow, who, you know, you don't even get to commit the bad acts, let alone reflect on them and possibly learn and grow. Um, it was almost a restorative way of thinking about the justice that they're doling out at the end of a person's life. Um, of course, it's also like a storytelling device so we can go back in time and see yeah. all of Mark and Steven's lives. Awesome. But, uh, but, but an interesting idea. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't want any of these things as storytelling devices. Tell me what, like, the broader implications for justice are <laughs> and temporality. I, um, can, can I just add one to that? Which is, <laughs> I think it's really cool that uh, basically in this telling, like, the way to go to heaven is just, like, be honest with yourself. Like, that's all that Mark yeah. really has to do is, like, look at his life honestly and not be in denial. My mother-in-law has the best advice I've ever heard, which is um, the worst lie you can tell is when you lie to yourself. 
I thought of that when that's what's balancing the scales is yeah. uh, just go back and take a good hard look at what you did in your life, Mr. Spectre. So. <laughs> <laughs> and let the parts of yourself that you're trying to wall off from the parts of your life that you would be tempted to lie about, see those parts of your life, mm-hmm. right? That's the, cause Stephen has to see the multiple places where Mark had tried multiple times to assert some kind of barrier. Where we have to go next is talking about Oscar Isaac and his just like banging acting job that he's, that he's doing here. And my favorite tidbit about this episode which I believe I heard on an episode of Ringerverse, shout out to Joanna Robinson and Mallory Rubin, um, is that Oscar Isaac is acting against his fr- like fraternal twin brother. That's the stand-in for when he's Mark, that's who's playing Steven. When he's Steven, that's who's playing Mark. And I just like, I think that that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I have, you know, my complaints about the show or this episode or the MCU more broadly, but, like, there's no doubt in that Oscar Isaac, like, is up to the task and beyond more than up to the task that's put before him acting-wise in the show in this episode in particular. Yeah. I would just add to that, uh, this is a superhero show. He could have done a bad job, and people would have still lined up to watch this thing. Yeah, uh, He didn't have to give us that caliber of performance. <laughs> so I think we should, we should call that a generous choice on Oscar Isaac's part to grace us with uh, the talent he brought in episode five. I want Nick to be on every episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's only one left. So, <laughs> and, and uh, episode six is where I give my final judgments. So, <laughs> Oh my, I I'm going to get zapped out. Like no, no, uh, no yeah. reads for me. <laughs> I think, I think you and me are going in the sand. Uh, yeah. We're, we're now. Sand no, I, people. I think, I think I'm the one that goes, in the sand yes this is oh if you're the one giving the judgments i think we're the ones that end up in the sand (laughs) (laughs) fair enough i'm mixing my fake metaphors okay um nick you noted that the origin of the name stephen grant as the altar to mark is worth commenting upon and why is that oh sure i thought it was sort of a winking reference to the larger kind of enterprise of like um sort of superheroic fiction aimed at kids. Um, I think, yeah, you know, if you're creating an alternative version of yourself who's going to sort of, you know, be shielded from the bad things of the world, and you're a kid, of course you're going to name it after your hero, you know, a superheroic figure like Dr. Stephen Grant. Um, and I think that speaks to the sort of larger function that superheroic or comic or comic cinema fiction plays in people's lives. Uh, I, I've always thought of them as a mix of power fantasies and moral fantasies. And that really appeals to like a young person, especially a young person who's growing up in a world where they don't have a lot of power and where things are happening around them that are really objectionable. So I just thought that made perfect sense. I said, yep, that's, that's what uh, an actual person would do. They would develop an alter ego and they would name it, you know, uh, Stephen Grant, or, you know, if they were in our universe, they would name it, you know, Professor X or, or yeah. I guess they would need a more conventional Bruce Banner or something. I mean, I love that. I also sort of love that this is the like in-universe version of Indiana Jones, which I'm <laughs> on board for. Um, though those movies do not hold up to our col- lens of colonialist scrutiny, <laughs> if you will. 
Also, just a totally unrealistic depiction of being a college professor. Oh, my really God. really felt like uh, misled. I'm, ju- I'm trying to climb out the window when my students come to office hours. It's like uh, Dr. Jones is, like, gallivanting off to Germany to, like, find a hidden tomb in the, uh, in, you know, in the basement of a library. It's not my life. <laughs> Classic McSweeney's piece about Dr. Jones, the college professor, if I remember correctly. <laughs> A solid, solid piece. John, you wanted to talk a little bit about Conchu's tomb scene um, in yeah. the memory exploration? Yeah, and I think that just that one of the, aesthetically speaking, one of the more intriguing aspects of Moon Knight to me has been Conchu and the depictions of Conchu, and this is, I think, pretty consistent with that. I appreciate the kind of both visual and oral, like O-A-U-R-A-L, mm-hmm. um, kind of excess of Conchu and F. Mary Abraham's voicing of Conchu. And when you two earlier were talking about kind of what does weird Marvel or what constitutes weird mm-hmm. Marvel, to me, like the places where Kanshu is asserting something about his project, the way he wants to, you know, elicit or manipulate or just take over Mark into that project in the human world, right? These sorts of things. Those are the places where the weirder, quote unquote, weird Marvel for me is working more than others. Okay. And this scene in particular um, was part of that, right? The way he builds down or breaks down Mark to then kind of, I'll make this manipulative offer that he will save him, but he has to become his agent in the world and all of this, you know, the, I feel the pain inside of you. What a waste bind your being to me. Um, do you want death or life? I can feel your fractured, broken mind, right? All of these sorts of things are just places where, you know, the kind of, combination of how the show is depicting mostly actually how the show is depicting Kanshu kind of spoke more to me. One of the things I like about Marvel is that you can have this universe that has so many of these different layers, right? There's like the Kanshu and the gods in the Aeneid and, and Bast and, and like sort of there's the, we'll call it extra human, I believe is a term I use in my chat beyond human. So that's one point. The other point is like this art, this episode in many ways is really just like an explainer episode, but it is done because it weaves these like interesting pieces together. Like we don't just get it as a, like, here's a brain dump of like info you need to know to explain the backstory of the show. It's like, it's done in a creative way. And I think the conchu of it all is a key part of that. So, Nick, I mean, you've spoken well in this episode to how the show is working with trauma generally or kind of Mark slash Mark and Steven's trauma more specifically. What role do you think that scene with Khonshu kind of how does that contributing to the exploration the show's doing? So I, I thought that scene was really powerful, too. And I thought it was the sort of culmination of Mark's whole story. He experiences all these traumas that prime him that lead him to a point where he can be taken advantage of by someone who is simultaneously pushing his buttons, who knows what's painful for him and who knows how to evoke that and who knows how to promise, you know, everlasting life. And um, who knows? uh, And I really loved seeing Steven's reaction. Steven is all along the way, the untraumatized or the pre-traumatized self saying, how can you not see this guy is manipulating you? He's no good. Um, and, and I just thought that was the perfect culmination of their kind of dialogue about trauma, their therapy session, if you will. 
It's also just a really visually arresting scene. I remember seeing that and thinking like, I wasn't sure we were five episodes in. I wasn't sure we were going to do the true yeah. Moon Knight origin scene. Yeah. And when we got to that scene, I was like, oh my gosh, they're doing it. And it looks so cool visually. Um, and so I was really satisfied by that. But if I will say to the show's credit, if they had tried to do episode five back in episode one, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Danielle, you called it earned. It was earned. We got, you know, four episodes of really spending some time with these two characters and then we get the backstory. I think that's really, that was a really satisfying ordering. Yeah, and I think that that's actually something that the more successful MCU shows do well is in playing around with that that timing, right? I think, like, in WandaVision, we also get the sort mm. of, like, walk through the past much later, right? And, like, it's part of how we understand Wanda's powers. And so I think, like, Moon Knight is doing a similar thing where we get where it feels earned because we like we walk into episode five with the weight of the four earlier episodes and then also the like the buildup that this episode garners as well. I think it's something smart that Marvel is doing. <laughs> no comment from John. No comment. <laughs> well, Just we'll, agree. We'll yeah, comment. we take that as agreement. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's in Good job, Marvel this. Studios. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Thank let's... you, Mr. Feige. <laughs> <laughs> the words that will, one will never hear come out of my mouth. Oh, uh, John, you want to talk a little bit about Dr. Harrow's uh, outfit here? Yeah, this is a little like let's carry over some Americans casting into the MCU half of the of the not quite great yeah. books. And then we love talking about wigs. We love talking about costumes. So uh, Ethan Hawke's whatever we want to describe that wig and mustache situation as in when he's playing Dr. Harrow, I'm just a fan of Mark makes fun of the, or Steven makes fun of the mustache. Um, not Mark as well. And a Britishism of Tash, which I've learned in this episode um, <laughs> of Moon Knight, but just, I, uh, I was into the, into the get up that they had for Ethan Hawke as Dr. Harrow. Ethan Hawke commits. I'm here for it. I love it. <laughs> And the glasses, yep. obviously. Yeah. Big big plus one on both of those. I would just add, too, that the Ned Flanders joke yes. also establishes that-, that the Simpsons exist within the Marvel Cinematic Universe along with shows like Star Wars. So, yes. so we now know that Simpsons is contained within the MCU. I'm very tempted to ask why we know or how we know that Star Wars is like canonically existing in the MCU, but I'll pass. And, uh... Another yeah, another time. <laughs> uh, John, I want to open it up. Nick and I have been heaping a lot of uh, like generosity onto this show. Me too. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> your version of generosity. <laughs> but I want to open it up. Let's do a quick complaint corner before we yeah. uh, get to the back half of this episode. Absolutely. I would actually say I've said I've liked or this was good more in the preceding hour in a long time now. One million percent. One million percent. Truly being generous in this episode. So let me lodge a couple of complaints. Okay. Um, One is that I actually, and I have given credit to the CGI and the depiction of other parts of Moon Knight so far. So I feel that this is earned. Yeah. I actually didn't like the CGI of the ship of the like, quasi-purgatorial, quasi-underworld universe. Something about it didn't work for me. I don't have a kind of more intellectualized thought about it, but just like on a pure level of aesthetic reaction, I didn't like it very much, and I thought it was not as good as previous like weird CGI things that Moon Knight had done. Complaint lodged. 
Okay, complaint launched. Um, can, I, can I disagree with you? Yes, please. <laughs> Obviously. Danielle is just like, I've worn her down with all of my yeah, complaints. Just, like, so can't. she just like lets me go and just is like, okay, I like, see that. I, I hear toy. that you made them. We're going to keep moving. So I, so please, I welcome. You're the, punishing the Marvel Studios and Moon Knight for raising the bar so high on visual effects. And... <laughs> That, that now a stunning visual representation of the Duat is not good enough for you. How dare you? And your <laughs> complaint is false. That's all. Awesome. <laughs> oh, my God. Nick is now the official co-host of this podcast. <laughs> wait, uh, wait, Danielle, is he replacing me or replacing you? No, he's joining us as a third. Okay, okay. <laughs> Great. All right, I need to go find some Aww. Marvel haters to maintain, to keep our own scales balanced, if you oh, will. If I will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what other complaints? I, like, really kind of couldn't stand what they did with Tavaret as, like, an actual character and way of being in the world uh, or being in the underworld. Like, turning Tavaret into, like, a jokey, bantery, like, comic sidekick which was mo- her role for most, not admittedly not all, but most of this episode, like I thought just fundamentally didn't work and like left a lot of untapped potential or untapped promise in having Tavarit be represented to have a like cool looking, here's all compliments the like CGI, I have a cool looking like hippo character um, slash goddess. And I just thought that like they reduced the potential of that to be like, she's a little bit aloof and making kind of jokes and banter and can't get her notes right. And all of these sorts of things. Like I thought that was a gigantic missed opportunity and was annoying to me. <laughs> May I rebut? So <laughs> Please. <laughs> I, I will agree with your praise of the visual design of the character, which yeah. I think was probably really hard to do because I know like in graphic, or I know when you create 3D characters that it's really hard to make an animal present as a human. Like the whole time we never, we, we never forget that like Tauret is like a character we're interacting with like another sentient being. I bet that was really hard to do from like an artistic standpoint. Yeah. To get that balance between the animal and the, the sort of, you know, relatable biped who's like us. I think that was really cool. I agree. Um, and so Marvel should probably pay visual artists a little bit better and not make them work under shitty working conditions. That's my <laughs> my interjection there. Generally well, agree. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. More, you know, here, here. More money for the, the workers in the sort of yeah, larger market production process. I liked Towerette. So I actually had initially the same reaction as you, John, which was like, this is too jokey. It's played a little bit too much for laughs. On rewatching, I like the contrast between Towerette and Conchu. Conchu is like yes. this over-the-top, hammy, just, like, very despicable character, you know, just whispering in your ear, like, kill him, you know, he's, he's like, comically overstated in his sort of evilness, and yeah. I liked uh, Towerette being, like, you know, sort of comically overstated in her sort of, you know, breeziness, her, her lightness. I'm gonna chart a course in between both of you. Surprise. <laughs> I don't like conflict, so I'm like, oh, where's the middle? Um, the real conflict between Danielle not liking conflict and also not wanting to be Aristotle and, like, go towards the mean. Exactly. Between the two it's a, it's a real str- The struggle is real. But I think, like, I agree, Nick, that, like, I like the the balance in thinking to wear it against Conchu. I like the jokiness. But I think, like, in this episode... 
the there's the jokiness is like a little bit too overplayed. Like I, I could have done with like the, Oh, she needed to like get the notes straight, but like not some of the other jokes, right? Like we could have had one of those and then shift into like a more lighthearted, but like less mm. like dunce cap <laughs> uh, version of the character. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll be in between you two. Any more complaints? I'll just say, like, to put a finer point on so we, we didn't get to go, go into the Orientalism or colonialism above, which I'm not mad about. Um, so just Danielle pushed me, actually, helpfully, before we started recording to kind of clarify what I see to be some of the more colonialist and or Orientalist uh, work that the show is doing or avoiding engaging with or something like that. So I'll just highlight two things. One is it's like there's a kind of political economy point to make here where it's like, we have this American corporation seeking to derive profit off of the depiction of Egyptian cosmology that strikes me as kind of structurally a problem, um, you know, an unavoidable problem if we take the kind of universe as pre-given in certain ways, as we were discussing earlier, but I think still structurally a problem that exists. Mm-hmm. And then this, you know, this is the kind of a you know, the point that I made back in um, the first episode, I think just that like, there's something that I'm usually not one to be like X person can't represent Y thing that is separate from them. But there's something about kind of the depths of the engagement with Egyptian cosmology m- created by mostly non-Egyptian people who kind of have no particular ties to that cosmology that also strikes me as off. So those are kind of two of the ways that when Danielle pushed me that I was thinking. So I just want to kind of lodge those as general complaints about Moon Knight and things that are kind of constantly on my mind as I am watching it. <laughs> like, okay, complaint lodged. I mean, like my my pushback to that is people that live in Egypt today are are also not like yeah, believing ab- in this cosmology. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so like, I don't know. There's something about, I think your point about like, creators and co-optation and exploitation. Like, I think that that's like an important thing to be thinking about, like within the MCU, within like all kinds of productions, but also maybe part of it is just like, well, Mark Spector is Jewish and like who better to like deal with Egyptian gods than someone whose ancestors were slaves in Egypt. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's my, like, just give us the 10 commandments all the time. (laughs) <laughs> my favorite movie. So, Danielle, what character would you most want to, like, introduce the Ten Commandments verse into the MCU? I mean, I think, like, we end up in, instead of being in the tomb, instead of the Tomb of Amit being Alexander the Great, the Tomb of Amit is, like, Ramses from, like, the Ten Commandments. And that is, that's how we get there. I'd watch it. I would have liked I would have liked <laughs> that more than Alexander the Great being the the tomb that uh, Ahmed is in. I think Alexander the Great, the tomb of Alexander the Great, was just the vehicle for you to not like the the storyline. Oh no, I specifically thought that that was a like gigantic eye roll on its own terms, but that was a, that was from last week's complaint corner. Okay, let's let's dig into let's quickly do minor character of the week because then I want to clear the floor for Nick to to do a little bit of politics. And the MCU yes. um, before we before we get out of here. So minor character of the week, I think we're in agreement on this that Stephen and Mark's dad, Elias Spector, who's played by Ray Lucas, I think is our minor character of the week. Agreed. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a it's a rough role. It's like an emotional to me. It was an emotionally challenging role, and it was emotionally challenging to watch like that character sort of like not intervene, which I think like that's sort of the point there. And Ray Lucas does a great job, and also looks kind of like Fred Armisen. So does look a little oh, like yeah. Fred Armisen. <laughs> Don't hate that. We had to check and make <laughs> sure it wasn't Fred Armisen. <laughs> We did. We did do that research for you, the listener. All right. So let us, as Danielle said, move on to politics in the MCU. And Nick has given some hints to Danielle and I of a grand unifying theory of either the MCU or perhaps the MCU as it relates to Marvel and Marvel Comics more broadly. So, Nick, the the floor is yours. Thanks so much. Um, I think one of the things – so I I listened to this podcast out of order. So I started with Moon Knight Episode 1. And then I jumped back to Loki, and and so, uh, but what really hooked me about the conversation between the two of you was actually John's critique in Moon Knight episode one, okay. um, which I thought was like hard to get around. I think we can soften it a little bit, yeah. But at the end of the day, there's there's something very very right about that criticism, um, and so that got me reflecting on like the larger sort of history of Marvel comics and the MCU, and I've alluded to this a little bit. So. My grand theory is that the Marvel Studios, the MCU, is retracing the major sort of steps that Marvel Comics went through as mm. a sort of creative property throughout its history, albeit on a massively accelerated timeline. So, like, okay. Marvel Comics starts out, <clears throat> it's a division of another company, okay? They initially have some success, but what really makes them explosively popular is when they start crossing over their superhero characters. No. Um, so, okay. so they start with, there's a Spider-Man comic and there are a few other, you know, freestanding titles, but then someone in 1964 gets the bright idea. Let's throw all these characters together sometimes. And that just really resonated with audiences because I think it just all of a sudden makes the storytelling like fundamentally different. Yeah. I mean, it basically says this fictional universe air quotes is like a massive canvas that literally hundreds and thousands of creatives can tell stories in, and it can be any genre of story that they want. Um, it's like we talked about Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby got to start penciling romance comics. Yeah. Um, and then they found him. They said, oh, come, you know, come do the Fantastic Four. Yeah. But Marvel Comics was doing romance and sci-fi and horror and all this stuff. And, and that made it such a cool storytelling environment because it sort of said to audiences, every kind of fiction and speculative fiction you like can all live side by side. Yeah. Um, and it sort of reminds me of, if you've seen um, Ready Player One, mm-hmm. it's uh, at the very end, there's this big battle scene where like every popular character from fiction is sort of yeah. assembled to battle against the big bad. Yeah. And it's so like immensely satisfying. I think we all sort of want to imagine that all the things we love, like our get together sometimes like a wedding, you know, all the people we love from throughout our lives thing that I think they've done on an accelerated timeline is they've started to grapple with the early mistakes that they made. So like yeah. Marvel, the MCU starts out, almost all the major protagonists are white men and they start to address that a decade later, but it's, they're still making some pretty serious missteps. And like, so I have a big criticism of Loki where like they introduce a character who's by then they don't do anything with that and they make him fall in love with himself. I like, share this criticism <laughs> so much. And so, but this actually perfectly tracks the history of Marvel comics, which is they start out. I mean, if you read a fantastic four comic from the 1960s, Sue Richards, uh, the invisible woman, it's the most sexist thing you'll ever read. Like her character yeah. is, is um, it's really bracing 
uh, how offensive it is, but somehow, you know, Marvel tries to do better. And, you know, you flash forward to the present day, if you were to go to a comic shop and pick up, you know, 10 books by, by Marvel Comics, you would probably find them to be interesting, inclusive, thought-provoking in a way that if you were to pick up 10 Marvel Comics from the 1960s, you would probably be rightly horrified. Um, Marvel Studios is, I think, going through an accelerated version of that where they're making, they're trying to do better, yeah. but they're also making missteps. If you go to Marvel Comics in the 1980s, read the first Falcon, the four-issue Falcon limited series from 1984, shockingly racist in its depiction of, yeah. of Sam Wilson. But they, you know, but, but you see like this Marvel Comics group trying to do better and still failing sometimes. I think that's basically what we're seeing with the MCU right now. So, John, back to your original critique that I found so compelling. Yeah, their tr- Marvel, Marvel Studios is, I think, making an earnest good faith effort to be inclusive. And maybe we could say that's for like capitalist profit reasons, whatever. But they are trying, but they are still failing sometimes. And I think that's yeah. why we can have both of these things coexisting in this show that's really doing some, I think, important and valuable things, um, but also, like, biting this colonialism, orientalism critique at the same time. The, and But this all gives me hope, because I think just as Marvel Comics today are so much better than they were yeah. at, the, at the outset, my guess is in 10 years we'll see Marvel Studios, and we won't have some of the same problems that we're seeing today. We'll have the – I think the the representation gets better. It's varied, and sometimes there are big setbacks, but – I've seen it as a positive growth story in the comics. I think we're seeing the same accelerated positive growth story in Marvel Studios. So that's my grand theory of like representation in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which allows for criticisms. Um, and, and you have to be clear eyed. And I think like this is such an important entertainment property. And we talk about this in the edited volume with Danielle um, and others. Like this is the most viewed content. On yeah. the planet, eight of the twenty-five highest-grossing films of all time are from this movie studio, from this fictional universe. Um, so I think it's really important to like do the kind of work you're doing on this podcast, do the kind of work we're doing in this book, the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, because it's important to look critically at that stuff that is reaching so many m- eyes and minds, um, and keep pushing it to be better, and keep doing those fan interactions where we say this isn't good enough, this depiction isn't good enough you've got to grapple with these, these problems. So that's my rosy, hopeful narrative, my, my <laughs> grand, cheerful theory about representation in the MCU. I and thank love you for it. indulging me. Oh, <laughs> happily. I, I love it. And I think what it helps capture is a point that I have been harping on in an annoying fashion for the last, I don't know, 10 weeks that we've been doing. Uh, this is week 11 of uh, Marvel. But this idea... It's a lot of weeks. It's a lot of weeks. But, like, there are certainly things to be critical of here. John and I are both quite critical of, like, the capitalist enterprise piece of all of this. But I think, like, the capitalist enterprise is, like... Like that's where, that's where we are. That's what we've got. And so then the question becomes within that framework, is it still doing something that is like worthwhile, that is worth being critical of? And like, I think Nick, like what I'm taking from you is like, yeah, these are, there are strides being made here, even if they're not the like social revolution strides that like maybe John and I in general would like in, in life. <laughs> Um, mm. I, I just, I think the other piece too is 
Marvel Comics gets more inclusive, more progressive, in part because the audience is changing, right? And the audience is, like, a more critical audience or, like, has populations that were not being represented or were being represented in really problematic ways. And they're pushing back in ways. And I think, like, there is a responsiveness in the... I think you're locating a responsiveness in the MCU, like, to that kind of... that kind of critique... I like, I think we all want more of it <laughs> and mm-hmm. like, but I think like the other piece is like that responsiveness is connected to profits and like those two things coexist. So we have to take the good here. We have to take the good with the bad. I want more it's, MCU properties. Yeah. It's not hyperbole to say like, you know, so, so within my household, there are certain members of my household who are tired of me saying capitalism debases us all like in response to just everyday occurrences like <laughs> like an appliance breaking or something um we but literally it. It, i can't think of anything that more redeems capitalism in my eyes than like without capitalism marvel comics and marvel cinema wouldn't exist how do i make sense of this tension within my own mind um yeah it's a capitalist enterprise but it produces something amazing and inspiring that is cinema and is art uh but but I feel that tension that you described very acutely. But we talked about this uh, uh, before the show. Like to live, to be a Marvel fan is just to live with these impossible dualities. Yeah. Yeah. This thing was really bad. Marvel comics were really objectionable, um, you know, a half century ago. And I yeah. dearly love these characters and stories. I have to just sort of sit with that. I have to be okay with both of those things being true to be a diehard fan of uh, of this stuff. Yeah. Nick is wearing his Captain Dab, uh, which is like in the Captain America shield fashion shirt for <laughs> us here. It was a Father's Day gift. We love it. <laughs> I'm obsessed with Captain it. Dad t-shirt. My dad's, I'm, here's a brief Sean Hanley corner. My dad is famous in my house for, in the middle of the pandemic, we're just like sitting at the dinner table. We are not talking about Marvel. We're not talking about movies. John's heard this story and he turns to me and my sister and goes, how can you be Captain America and a member of the Fantastic Four? And like just musing about Chris Evans. So I feel like my dad would really love that shirt. We love a Uh, Sean Hanley reference on this podcast. Sounds like you know what you're getting Sean Hanley for his next birthday. One million percent. December 14th for all of our listeners. Okay. Interesting. Sagittarius King. Okay, okay. No. There's a break in between, right? Yes. Nick, do you want to tell us a little bit about the volume that you've referenced and that we've talked a little bit about? I know we talked about it with Lily, but maybe that's a good way to cap this off. Sure. The volume is titled... Cap this off? Oh, A+. For me, for catching it, that's the A-plus, right? Both. Yes. Both and. Both and. Both and. Um, So the volume is called The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's out with University Press of Kansas this December. Um, But it's already available for pre-order at bookstores. Um, You're also getting that for Sean Hanley, right? For his December 14th birthday, along with the shirt, right, Daniel? I think... I think Amazon says the release date is December 14th, so this might oh, be... we obviously have to. Does my dad um, know what an assemblage is? No, he does not, but it's fine. He will. He will. 
I didn't know before I read your chapter what an assemblage was. I learned from from that chapter a great Fair. deal, actually, and uh, I don't mind telling you that. Um, well, so it's you know, in sort of recognition of the fact that the MCU is so expansive. I mean, it's I think collectively the largest product of you know one of the largest products of cinema, one of the largest in terms of runtime fictional stories set in cinema, um, and it's almost certainly the most viewed. If you were out of like the hours people spend watching cinematic content, the MCU is, if not the most, you know, significant cinematic product in that sense, it's a contender. Um, because yeah. it's so expansive, there are so many movies and so many shows. It's actually really hard to analyze it politically. Like we need an entire, however many minutes of this show just to talk about one episode of moon Knight. So the vision Lots of, of the- minutes, <laughs> any minutes, John edits them all. So <laughs> We don't need a 12-hour day. We need a 16-hour day to talk about this stuff. Um, so I think uh, the, the way we're thinking about this volume is to really wrestle with this thing, you need a lot of really smart people looking at the MCU with different critical lenses. And that's yeah. what this volume tries to be. It's 30-ish political scientists or political theorists or you know 30-ish people who care deeply about the uh, uh, systematic study of politics and society coming together and asking what messages is this 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 entertainment behemoth sending people about the world they live in and um so so every chapter has a different author every chapter has a different focus um it's roughly organized into several chapters about the politics that come through in the MCU origin stories several chapters about the sort of conventional superhero politics, government, the military, mm-hmm. and then a long section on representation with a special emphasis on the representation of gender in the MCU, yeah. which was the original catalyst for the entire project. Yeah. Talking about how, how feminine, you know, talking about gender and feminism in Captain Marvel and in Avengers Endgame, um, you know, was where this whole project started and what got all of us interested in looking critically at the MCU. But I, I like, I truly believe in this project. This isn't what I do. I research the economic backgrounds of politicians um, and, and, you know, have done that for a really long time. And I like want to study climate politics in the U.S. Why, why take a, you know, sort of detour and write about Marvel? I do love it. But, um, but the real reason is like, I actually think that this material, this content really influences people. It really reaches people. Um, and so I do think it's worth critically examining it. And so to go, to go back to the beginning, that's what hooked me about this show was like, John, you were thinking critically about something that my mind had kind of blown past on first watching. And I'm like, yeah, that's what we need to do. We need to question the assumptions. If we're all going to be watching this thing, if so much of the world is going to be watching this entertainment, we do need really smart people thinking about what lessons it's teaching us. And so this book is a first attempt uh, by, by a big group of people to try to do that. Uh, John, I believe what I'm hearing from Nick is that in volume two, which will tackle phases four through six, <laughs> um, you will be writing a colonialism Oof. and Moon Knight essay. Sounds, sounds like it. I'm just going to clip Nick saying that uh, my critique was compelling and just putting <laughs> that in. And I'm retroactively going to go every time Danielle has had no time for my complaints. I'm just going <laughs> to drop that in retroactively. You're talking about realities here. But no, Nick, we appreciate that that look. And I, it's been fun for me to get to hear both from you and from Lily how the project came about and why the project is meaningful and yeah. significant. So that's cool that we got to, we got to talk to both of you and to give you a chance to plug the book is now on Twitter. Yeah. 
That's right. Um, at MCU Politics is the book's Twitter account, and so please, you know, follow it for uh, breaking news about this exciting edited volume and all the wonderful authors who have contributed to it. Yeah, there's I, there's a lot of good coming from this volume in my life, in our lives, and I think like I'm excited to work with some colleagues here at Clark and to sort of design a class that is using uh, our book as like the main sort of the main textbook. So I'm pumped about that. Well, and Danielle, your chapter is like a great case in point about um, what I think makes the book really special, which is like, I actually don't study political theory and I hadn't encountered the concept of an assemblage before reading your draft chapter (laughs) way back when. So in that respect, I was more like just a Marvel fan who picks this book up. Yeah. It was really captivating. The analysis of like uh, uh, the MCU content was really compelling but at the same time, I was also learning a really valuable concept that has like helped me think about the world yeah. myself um, oh. along the way. So Danielle's chapter is about um, family assemblages, which is a concept I hadn't encountered before. And as soon as I read this chapter now, I spot them not just an MCU concept, yeah. but it helps me think about the political world around me. So um, so I actually think your chapter is like the, the poster child for what we were trying to do oh, here. I love it. Um, I love and, it. Oh my God. And I mean that. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because we're on your show and I'm a fan of the show and all that. Um, I'm blushing. So, but I think it underscores like this is a book for political scientists who want to learn more about the MCU. But I hope it's also like a book that exposes MCU fans to like the important ideas that yeah. people like the two of you are developing in your academic work. So, so I think, I, I hope that this basically takes the good work you're doing on political theory and political science, takes it to, um, people who can, you know, not just understand the MCU better, but like understand the world better as a result. So, so Danielle, thanks so much for the chapter and John, thanks in advance for committing to writing a chapter for volume. Four. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that happened, but, uh, but you know, podcasts are permanent records. I've now made it. <laughs> oh, good. What a relief. We, okay. We can, we can like, I'll, I'll write, you know, however many words Danielle will write, however many words. And then I don't know what happens with like the last 500 words. But, uh, <laughs> well, as we are ending this discussion of the politics in the MCU volume on a little bit of political theory, what better opportunity than to move into the cave to just sprinkle in a little bit more political theory to this podcast? That's right. So, Nick, you said that you uh, were, didn't have the political theory background, so we're going to drag you into the cave with us as we engage with our old friend Plato. And, Danielle, do you want to kick us off as to how Plato uh, is the person for the cave in this episode? Well, first of all, we have an actual cave. So <laughs> I, I, we would be remiss if we didn't bring Plato into our cave if in an episode with a cave. Like, there's a cave. We have to do Plato. So... As you can hear from my excitement, that's really the big sticking point for me. Um, John, you had a little bit more uh, developed thought beyond mm, the that's very there's generous. a cave here. <laughs> so <laughs> what? tell us a little bit about the maybe the scales or the souls and how Plato helps us with, with that. Oh, I was just, as they are approaching the gates of Osiris on the ship, and Tavaret says something like, only if your souls are balanced can you pass through them. Yours are not, and that is the reason why the gates are almost entirely closed. 
And of course, if one thinks about a balanced soul, one has to think about the not just the just city, but the just soul in the Republic, in which the three main parts of the soul, according to Plato, must be in proper alignment and ruled in the proper proper way and have the proper relationship with one another in order for the soul to be well-ordered. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not that the thumatic part, right? The spirited part, which we could probably locate in Mark, um, has to be absent. It's that like that part needs to be balanced by the, uh, the sort of like wisdom and reason, um, the logos of the soul. And I think there's (laughs) something about the Mark Steven relationship that comes to that balance or starts to come to that balance as the scales are slowing down. There's something about learning about oneself, know thyself, um, that like brings balance to the soul. That's what oh, I've got. I didn't, I didn't know we were getting a Mark Thumos reference. Um, I'm 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 just flabbergasted. Hi, I'm here just to say Greek words. <laughs> <laughs> Thumos is the best part of the soul. Wow. <laughs> you heard it here first. That's a, that's a hot take if I ever heard one. All right. Well, I think we, you know, we leave Plato down there because that's where he's got to be. Um, <laughs> uh, Nick, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on this podcast, for mostly taking my side on debates. <laughs> no, but really, like, I think helping helping us work through some of the pieces that maybe I'm more excited about and John's more frustrated by and think about how they might exist a little bit more in tension or in relation to one another. And also just for, you know, your grand unifying theory of the MCU. We love a grand unifying theory on this podcast. In sure fact, do. we dedicate full episodes to these things. So we are thrilled that you laid one out for us. Well, the pleasure is truly all mine. Thank you both so much for letting me join the fun today and for all the great work you do. Amazing. Well, thanks as always to producer Amy. Um, Next up in the feed on Thursday, American season two, episode 11. Uh, Next week on Tuesday, the final Moon Knight episode, episode six, Gods and Monsters will drop. And thank you all for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast, which is created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Bless FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball.